The Truck and Driver podcast is sponsored by Snap Account, the all-in-one payment solution for truck parking, washing, tolls and more. Hello and welcome to the Truck and Driver podcast. I'm Dougie Rankin and I'm delighted to have back with me today Bob Beach, who does a lot of writing for both Truck and Driver, Commercial Motor and other publications. Very knowledgeable about trucks and we had him on last November, believe it or not, it was that long ago where we were talking mainly about the Iveco S-Way 570, which um, I'd just driven for a week for Broughton Transport. Bob, how are we doing? I'm fine, I'm fine, yes, hale and hearty, despite the way the world's gone for the last year, but yeah, good. I mean, kicking things off, I mean, we've driven quite a few of the same trucks recently, and the one that we um, we wanted to talk about starting off with was the Scania 770S, um, because I had it for a week and then it went down the road to you not long after that. You've driven quite a variety of V8s and Broughtons have got a couple as well, the local company you do a lot of work for, so... How did you get on with it? Yes, good machine. Well, there'd be something wrong with the world if it wasn't a good machine, would there really? <laughs> Considering the amount of money they want for one. But yeah, it's it's the sort of culmination, I suppose, of 50-odd years of development. And uh, it's like everyone ever, always says, whenever Scania or anyone else brings out a really high-power vehicle, they say there's no need for it, there's no demand for it. But to my knowledge, that's been going on since the 140 came out 50-odd years ago. There is demand for it, and it drives technology forward. And not only that, it kind of just makes the day a better day when you're driving one as well. Ah, it was uh, something else. Um, I hadn't experienced um, anything quite like that. I had the, the 750 Volvo a few, um, well, three years ago now, where I was moving plant about with it, but um, storming up Stainmore in 10th gear and power mode, where the thing didn't come off the limiter at all was um, quite an experience, you know, but the thing that I found was you had to be so light on the throttle to get the best out of it. You had to really retune your driving. Um, if you were driving like a normal powered tractor unit, something 460, 500, you would find you were far too heavy on the throttle of the Scania, but the software did like an amazing job of um, keeping the power, all that stuff under control. Well, what it is, really, it's a kind of, it's the ultimate conclusion of a world controlled by computers. And the electronic control systems that manage the, the engine, the transmission, every aspect of it, they've got set parameters because, to be perfectly blunt, if you put 3,700 newton metres of torque through a single drive axle in every gear, the highways and byways of Britain would be littered with with components, destroyed components of trucks. And it goes a lot further as well. If you drive it, as you say, within the kind of sensible parameters, it actually rewards you with better overall performance and a more, more relaxed drive. I think one of the issues that people have, they get in a truck with that level of power and they imagine it's going to be something like an episode from Dukes of Hazard or something. Well, it can't be like that. It couldn't be like that. It's actually a more sophisticated and a more, what's the word, an intelligent form of performance. The electronics and the algorithms that control the operation of the whole drivetrain are programmed to obviously go for a combination of economy power and also preserving the kind of mechanical integrity of it all. The harder, as you say, the harder you drive it, the quicker you see the traction control light come on, etc., etc. But there's no reason to drive like that. You you actually make better progress if you relax. You sit back and you just observe. 
It's a bit like driving a really powerful car. Everyone wants to have a go at you, but the best way to kind of put them down is not even respond, because the thing, it just gets from A to B faster and faster of its own accord. Aye. Now, I'd noticed as well that um, since we'd both driven the 770, that Broughton's had just got in a 590, because, of course, with the 770 being launched, um, they'd updated the entire range, so you've now got a 530 entry-level V8, a 590, a 660 and the 770 of course and previously the 650 was becoming increasingly popular among operators as opposed to the 730 which you don't get anymore um, because well 650 is more than enough at 44 tonnes anyway but I'm a bit curious as to what that 590 is like because it has also got Scania's new gearbox in it which is the first one that I've um, encountered indirectly with that gearbox so what's, do you know the difference between the gearbox yeah, it's, uh, I can't remember the designation. Is it a 33GCM or something like that? It's their new, uh, well, it's actually a completely new gearbox with the OptiCruise automated change system on it, two-pedal transmission. It's got an ultra-low crawler gear and a very, very high overdrive top gear. They've done away with synchromesh in the gearbox. There's three countershaft brakes that speed the up changes. And it's also got a very advanced lubrication system with minimal oil actually in the bottom of the gearbox casing. And most of the oil is kept in like a catch tank, which is like a dry sump oil lubrication system that they use in racing car engines. It gives more focused and um, directed lubrication and reduces churning losses with if the gears are ever in a conventional gearbox get to the point where they're actually dipping into the, the oil in the, like in the base of the casing. It's also got a total of i believe four reverse gears and other fancy um kind of new developments but the idea with the very very high overdrive gear and the fact that it changes gear so quickly is it'll go down the road in top gear but drop into 11th direct 11th um, gear uh, it, in, in a moment and change back up again i haven't driven the thing but apparently the regular driver tells me at 56 miles an hour it's running at no more than 950 revs which is ultra, ultra low, but still within the green band of the revised engines. And he said it pulls, it pulls that gearing really well, and he said the gear changes are absolutely seamless. Also, it's very early days, but on his first run down into Germany, with a, admittedly a light load, it recorded something like 12.5 to the gallon, which, out of, which for a V8 is absolutely staggering. Whether it maintains that and that's just a flash in the pan or whatever, we don't know, but I think it's... It's a very much a worthwhile development and what Scania have actually done to a certain extent they've caught up with Volvo because the Volvo I-Shift has never had has always been without synchromesh and now Scania's equivalent gearbox has is a constant mesh gearbox which gives it less rotating mass like in the gear sets itself and also faster gear changes they've obviously gone a step further as well with, uh, with with other changes and other developments and it looks likely that this gearbox will eventually find its way into the 770 when they've developed it to handle the extra torque and I wouldn't mind betting it will probably find its home in, in an MAN as well, you know, mm. in the equivalent MAN trucks. It would seem likely yeah, that MAN is going to use uh, more, some more Scania technology going forward like that. I wonder with that, is that gearbox going to be like put into like the 500s and things, the six cylinder engines, is it being rolled out into that, into that, do you know? 
As far as I know, yes, because I know that Broughton's have got um, some 540s coming with it in, and I believe you can have it with lower-powered engines. I don't know if it goes all the way down the weight range to the five-cylinder in rigids and what have you, but I would imagine it's an in it's an indication of where, where it's going to go across the board. And like with the MAN, um, the MAN equivalent, as they're part of the same holding company or the same parent company, I would imagine to get their return on investment, the best way is to use it as, in as many vehicles as they possibly can. Yep. Um, just, uh, I'm thinking if it's sitting with 950 RPM at 56, so it's kind of, if you're going to run that diff ratio, the, or the gear ratio, then you've got to kind of have it running at 56 miles an hour. You can't have it turned down to 53. No. Because I mean, then it's going to be um, sitting really low down and it's going to be holding 11th all the time. I, I think... I think the, an element of it as well is when you've got overall gearing that high, you don't really need to despeed the vehicle because you're in a situation where it's running at its most advantageous rev range. And not only that, it's actually getting up the hills a little bit quicker because you're actually hitting the hills at sort of three, four mile an hour faster. So I've never really kind of bought into the idea of despeeding a vehicle or, de or turning down the speed limit to such an extent that it has to drop another gear as it goes over a hill. The whole thing seems a little bit pointless. No, neither have I. I know if, I know that um, with a lot of the dafts when they came out with the very long top gear in them, that they were coming out with like 53 miles an hour speed limiters on them and it was completely wrong for the truck because it spent the whole night and hunting for 11th gear because it simply couldn't pull its way along, which um, isn't um, giving you the correct, the correct fuel economy. So that'll be it'll be interesting to see. I mean, I guess there'll be a whole series of ratios that you can get in it as well, which will be, you'll be able to match correctly to the to the power and whatever it is that you're doing with a truck. I think the other thing that people are going to bear in mind is fine when you're specking up a new vehicle. You can sit there with a with a salesman with his laptop, and you can come up with the different gearing setups. But people will need to be a bit careful when they're buying used trucks as well. I mean, the get out of jail card scan you've got is the first crawler crawler first ratio is even lower than before which means that also reverse is low so you're not suffering the penalty of having very high overall gearing and poor gradeability and too high a reverse gear as well but there are limits and i think again if you're looking at a used vehicle you need to do a little bit of research into the gearing because if you're going to run it in northern scotland with a tipping trailer or something it needs to be geared a bit differently than if it's on the highways and byways of europe Mm -hmm. Have you uh, have you driven one of the five forties? You had one of them yet? Not not for an extended period. I drove I drove a couple of them in um, on a on a press trip early part of last year, and there's definitely there's more go in them than a five hundred. It's not you know any different than you'd imagine with a kind of hundred newton meter, hundred and fifty newton meters of torque and forty brake horsepower, but a little bit more on top of the job. And they, from what people tell me, they are as good, if not better, on fuel as well. I would say it's that's going to be the kind of the economy vehicle, full-time 44-ton work. The V8s, well, going by what that 590 has done so far, I think they've made sort of forward strides. And we we both found with the 770, it was getting better as it was running as it was running itself in fuel-wise and performance-wise almost by the day, wasn't it? Yeah, well. Um... I mean, Scania uh, were delighted to give me the the trucks. I was the very first person to use it, so it had literally been driven up from Milton Keynes um, and then handed to me. So when I first had it, the fuel economy was shocking. You know, it was it was going through the process of degreening, um, which is where it burns off all the waxes and all the plastic heats up for the first time on the A66. So yeah, I was like down at like six point eight miles to the gallon. 
uh, at one point at its worst. But I actually did. Um, uh, I put. I wrote out the work that I did for that week, and I was flat out the entire week at, at forty tons. Quite often, open, uh, right on forty-four tons a lot of the time, and the thing just never stopped the whole week. So I came in. At, um, I think I peaked at about seven and a half miles to the gallon, which wasn't great, but it was brand spanking new. And everybody else that gets the truck consequently would be getting better fuel economy out of it. But I was doing a lot of mental gymnastics as well because it wasn't very quick when I had it. It was only doing 54, so I was like, I'm not going to make it back to Scotland tonight. I'm not going to be able to do this. I'm not going to be able to do that. But the thing simply never slowed down the whole time that it made up so much time that it was probably about as quick, if not quicker, than sort of like a 450 doing a good high 56. Yeah, it's... It, by the time I got it a week later, it had got itself up by a good half mile per gallon. It was improving, and I did see on a couple of light runs getting up towards nine to the gallon. And I would say within a month, month, six weeks, and what have you, it wouldn't be dramatically kind of far behind a 650. It would never equal a 650 on fuel consumption because that is exceptionally, exceptionally good. But it would, it, out of the box, it was better than a lot of the outgoing 730s which is a considerable achievement, really, when you see they've upped the power, they've upped the torque, etc., etc., and you are getting, sort of, to a degree, something for nothing. But, well, not nothing, not with Scania's prices, but there we are. But uh, the, other, the other thing is with it as well, people have always got to bear in mind, you don't buy a 750, 770 horsepower truck if you're looking for like, the best possible fuel economy. What you're looking for is a machine that will get the job done regardless. It's it's a it's forty. If it, apart from heavy, really heavy work, is time deliveries, long distances, hard roads, heavy loads, and that's why. And 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 that that is the whole focus of it. If anyone buys anything like that, thinking they're going to be in double figures every week, they're going to be sort of sadly disillusioned. But also, previous experience has shown another ten or fifteen tons behind it doesn't make a lot of difference because it is what it is that's what it's doing and it it's best to be worked at its optimum oh well that, that's it i mean they're developed and designed a lot um, they're not really designed for us and um, they're designed for the scandinavian market where they're running with um two trailers at 65 tons and yeah i've, I've not experienced it with the scania but i have with a volvo 750 where we've been out um, with um, a double trailer with logs on it at 65 tons and it just it still, you know, pulled itself up to the limiter and cracked on, even with an extra um, 21 tonnes above what we would run in the UK. What you find is, obviously, the electronics that monitor everything. They monitor the imposed load on the suspension, on air-suspended axles. They measure the turbo boost and the, how quickly the engine gains revs, how quickly the turbo spools up, how and and other factors like if it's turning as well if one wheel is turning faster than the other by the abs sensors it works out that it's turning a corner etc etc and all that information is fed back into the kind of central ecus and to put it bluntly they dole up the power and torque in relation to what they think it needs and it's uncannily accurate actually it does it does uh, no matter what you do you won't influence it any more than the information uh, that it's it's reading is telling it what's going on. When you drive one in manual, a lot of people think that by driving one in manual they're going to be able to influence the performance. But realistically, all they're doing is taking it further up the rev range, probably using more gears than they need to to get to top gear. Because the best thing you can do with a big engine is get it in top gear and leave it there. 
I mean, I, I love my manual gearboxes, but with the, with the, the latest generation, sort of Euro 6 onwards automatics, it's very rarely that I'll take control of something apart from maybe, maybe an eco mode, a kind of modestly powered DAF where I'll be wringing its neck um, to get it to go. I will generally just leave things in automatic and never touch them. The Scania, um, I left it in eco mode the majority of the time because it's got the three modes in the gearbox, the eco, the standard and the, the power mode. And I just used power mode once or twice just for a laugh, just, you know, just to see what it would do. Um, and it was pretty outrageous, really. Like, I, I wouldn't um, like to speculate as to what fuel economy you would get if you ran a 770 in power mode all the time. <laughs> yeah, I, I would think, you know, you probably cut it by, you cut your average in half. I tried it once in power mode on a particular hill on, uh, on the Foss Way. And it almost, even at 40 ton plus, it's a little bit too much because it just revs too much and drops too many gears. And it all gets a bit frantic. You feel like you're some boy racer driving some souped up car annoying people. Well, some people do feel like that. <laughs> yeah, drive <laughs> trucks. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they do. But, it, and I, but I found if you really wanted to use power mode uh, in the odd occasion, you're as well to put it into manual and just curb its enthusiasm a bit because you aren't really giving it enough to do. But it's... Um, it, the other aspect, I mean, if you go back and have a certain vintage, I remember like driving 141s and 142s, and they always perform very well in top gear. If you kept them in top gear, because they're, in those days, as most of the Scania V8s are now, they're direct drive top gear, and with a widespread of torque, they would hold on to top, particularly on motorway hills and that, for a long, long time. You tended to find the performance tailed off once you started to, to change down. With the modern ones, because it's torque limited and the top two gears are the top gear, the same effect actually happens. So even though the revs drop and the revs drop and drop and drop, just leave it there. Don't muck about with it, because it'll actually gain speed quicker as soon as you come over the top of the hill. And to be Brutally honest, either the 650, especially with the 770, or the older 730, they don't lose much much speed on hills at all. And and people often, they often confuse noise and revs with actual performance. It isn't like that. It The more you rev the thing, quite often, you're getting to the point where all you're doing is just spending more time and more diesel pushing the rev range, the rev counter further around the rev range. Just leave it in top gear. At a thousand revs, these things are producing so much torque, they'll recover from absolutely ridiculously low revs. And sometimes it's like people have have got themselves into an idea that they think it's they're driving they're driving some high performance car or whatever and and like it the electronics will not let that happen because they can't because otherwise as i say it would destroy the transmission ah oh, you do well you know in the scania you've got the driver score system which i find a bit i just tended to ignore it because i thought it was a bit random but um you get the percentage and the stars on the screen yeah. and so i've I found when you get into trucks and dafts as well you get into them and then you look at the score of somebody who's driven it before, and it's like nineteen percent or something, and you're like, "How have you? How have you actually managed to get it that low?" I think some people don't use the engine brake or the retarder at all, and must drive it with their foot flat to the floor, like everywhere. Because even if you drive like relatively normally, you should be able to get a score sort of like fifty, sixty percent. I think it, that's a good point actually, because you've got to be careful not to be too obsessed with the driver's score because. What it is, it's only asking a question within sort of set parameters. With a Scania, you've got one of the disciplines is braking. If you've got a retarder, and the Scania retarder is a brilliant piece of equipment, I've 
sort of had experience of them, I suppose, going back to when they first came out on mid-range, middle of, the middle of the 143 series. And if you use it intelligently, it's such an aid to kind of cross-country um, journey speeds. It's as it's as probably as, as much of an advantage of having a, a hundred brake horsepower more without a retarder, if you follow me logic. Mm. And, but on the driver's score, because you've got a number of ways you can use the retarder, you can use it manually by clicking it down and controlling it on the stalk. You can use it via an automatic setting on the foot brake, or you can use it in conjunction with the foot brake. As you brake, it brings it in accordingly. If you use it on the manual control, it doesn't record it as braking. If you use it via the automatic setting as you come over the top of a hill and you kiss the brake pedal and it then becomes a downhill speed control, that reads that brief touch of the foot brake as being braking and it brings your score down. But you can actually be using the brakes hardly at all by using the retarder most of the time, but the telematics read that as excessive braking. Which is as is like it, it isn't quite true if you follow my if, mm. you know if you follow what I'm saying. Uh, it's not something that I've ever got um, too obsessed over with that mainly because I'm like needing to get where I'm going, <laughs> whatever work that I'm doing. I'm quite um, interested to see because I've got the opportunity to drive a couple more Scania's um, after having a long kind of time of not really driving them. I had the R500 manual last year for a couple of days at Rocks Off Gravel, which is really uh, an unusual truck because they're so rare now. And I have it, somebody told me at the weekend, and I don't know how true it is, that Scania are going to eliminate manuals from their range come the end of this year. Um, I would need to get confirmation on that, but if you are a fan of the Scania's manual gearbox, you'd better get your order in now because there are going to be no more um, just shortly. And with the impending launch of the DAF, which we're going to get on to, uh, in a few minutes time um, I would imagine that DAF are probably going to bin them off as well or make it very limited you're not going to be able to get the new biggest cab with the biggest engine in it my manual box anymore I expect I would be su very surprised if you do um, but then again the technology is now so advanced that um, a manual gearbox is really fighting against every single thing that they're trying to make the truck do because it's taking the, that extra control away from its um, efficiency systems if you like you know it's um it's that um out of kilter with everything else it's been a kind of 25 year plus period um period of development really if you go back to the early volvo geartronics and the early astronics and they they weren't the best but it took a long time it took full canvas electrics and a fully integrated drive line to make it work properly and more advanced software as well but in the main for nearly every application now, if you drive an auto automated gearbox properly and if the software is not too intrusive, there's hardly anything you can't do that you could do with a manual. The very, very best drivers in certain situations in really slippery services could possibly feed the clutch in that little bit more sensitively. But once again, if you look at the full range of software options and rocking modes and different things like that, the biggest problem is that most people aren't told how to use them. They stick it into auto, they floor the throttle, and away it goes. You've seen it, Dougie. I've seen it. No end of people. One of my kind of pet hates is that people don't use engine brakes and auxiliary braking systems. 
driving schools have taught people to brake, brake for corners, brake for roundabouts, use the brake pedal, don't bother using the gearbox, don't bother using the engine brake. I had a row with one driving school guy about it. And uh, anyway, we won't go into that. I've had a row with a lot of people over the years. But uh, it's when I'm walking my dog down the road, there's a roundabout just up the road from where I live. It's completely flat. There's no appreciable gradients for 10 miles. I hear trucks coming along and stopping towards the roundabout. All I can hear is the squealing of brakes. I can't hear the engine brake. I can't hear the truck changing down. And I can smell brakes as well. And I think this is a very strange way to teach people to drive, to rely on the the thing that you should use to stop you in an emergency. And also, the other aspect of it is, if you've just brought the vehicle to a standstill on brakes, the gearbox might have come down two or three gears. But if you sit there with, like, with holding it on the foot brake, the vehicle's probably come to standstill in about seventh gear. So as soon as there's a gap in the traffic, they transfer, take the foot off the foot brake, put the foot on the throttle pedal, and the thing has got to decide then what's the starting gear is because it hasn't been told, you haven't initiated it. If you'd used the engine brake, the thing would have started changing down further and it knows it's decelerating, it knows it's going to a control stop. And the most simple thing you've got to do is as you're at a standstill, just tap the, fo- the throttle pedal. Don't floor it, just tap it and it picks the starting gear and then it's ready to go. If you're using the hill hold properly as well, the vehicle will hold itself on the you haven't got to hold the foot brake either. But people aren't taught, unfortunately. People are taught to to pass their tests, but they're not taught to drive modern trucks. No, but the thing is with a modern truck now, I mean, you're talking 500 horsepower, 2,500 newton metres of torque, um, and all you need to do is get in, flow the throttle, and it drives. You don't um, get a real feeling for, like, how much weight the thing's carrying and the stresses and strains that it's under. But somebody told me you see a lot of rollovers these days, and I think it's down to just how refined the trucks are and how much you get into a false sense of security of what you're driving because you just jump into it and it's got beautiful light steering and powerful brakes and it's quiet and um, you don't really... If, if you were to go and um, hook it into something that was a bit older where you could really feel it working and going up and down the gears and that, you would get more of a feeling for it. And people... There's, there's a fair amount that you need to know about modern automatics as well that you don't know about. Um, it's the same way you've got that weight transfer switch, you've got the diff lock as well, you've got the hill hold on them, which are all things that can help you in like low traction situations, but people don't know about it and they're not taught about it either. No, um, too, and there's a too, lot of stuff. Right. You, be it a tag axle or be it a pusher axle, what people fail to do, they're manoeuvring in a tight spot. If you dump, don't try to lift, if you dump the weight off, particularly off a pusher axle, you reduce the tyre scrub. That gives you more control over the clutch bite because you haven't got that resistance as the vehicle is trying to pick up drive. A tag axle, if you dump the tag axle, you'll turn it on sixpence and not only that, it reduces tyre scrub, reduces resistance, wear tear, etc, etc. I wonder how many people are even taught the rudiments of that when, they, when, when, when they're, they're first taken out in a truck. Probably very little, aren't they? Probably not, and the thing, I mean, I passed my test, well, it's over, when was it, 2009 did I do my class 2? Well, back then, um, which isn't that long ago, really, you wouldn't get anywhere, if you passed your class 2 or your C rigid, you wouldn't actually get anywhere near a full-size one. You had to start out in a seven and a half tonner, and if you went and did your Arctic licence, they wouldn't let you near one unless you had two years' experience. So you spent a lot of time driving seven and a half tonners and then 18 and 26 tonners and things before you finally get into an Arctic. But um, nowadays, because of the shortage and the way things are, you can be um, fast-tracked straight into an Arctic 
uh, and then you can be out like after just a couple of weeks training and you don't have that kind of build up of experience and learning a lot of the essentials of, of the job before you're out in the really big stuff where if you get it wrong it goes spectacularly wrong <laughs> with an arctic it's interesting you say about people not really being aware of the weight and the effects of it all i mean from a since i started driving in the 70s on kind of sub 200 brake horsepower 32 tonners and it wasn't a matter of pulling away in the wrong gear because quite often they'd only pull away in one gear which was bottom and if you had like a widespread tandem axle trailer and the scrub of it unless you with something like a little F86 Volvo or an F7, when you turn sharply, fully loaded, you had to be in bottom gear for it to be able to to actually pull the trail around. And it also, one of the other aspects where driving's changed so much, modern brakes are so efficient and so powerful, they flatter people into thinking that they can stop in every situation. Years ago, camo wedge-operated drum brakes and that, they were far less efficient, more prone to fade. And it's like I say, like when I'm out walking the dog, whenever I smell trailer brakes or truck brakes on a flat piece of road, I, I just cringe because um, I was always taught from an early age, once you smell brakes, you're in trouble because mm. the chances are you're, you're, you're on the fine line between being able to stop or not. A curious one, I've got an article, I think it's um, written by Paul O'Callaghan in the next issue, where um, one of the operators in Ireland has specified some new fairly high-powered trucks, but they haven't taken the retarder on them because the guys were using the retarder so much they were never touching the brakes, and the trailer brakes were starting to, like, um, they were going, like, rusty and things and starting to clag up, so he's just taking the engine brake because he said, you know, please... Can you cover the brake now and again and do a bit of braking to keep everything working? Because yeah, the truck was so effective at stopping. They reckon about half a day a week. Scania did have a facility on the retarder, on the automatic foot brake setting that activated it. I think it every sixth application it brought the it brought the foot brake in as well to stop their like corrosion on discs. Again, it, it's it's all part of good practice and understanding what technology is at your disposal. You'll know, Dougie. Probably the most neglected piece of technology in the motor industry is the handbook, uh, with a with a new vehicle. Yeah, I must admit I'm guilty of that because when I had the when I had the truck, I, I I didn't read the handbook on on it, and then the first night you had it, you'd read the entire handbook. So <clears throat> oh, yeah, I should um, make a point of reading them when they're available instead of just, trying just, to suss it out for myself. It just shows what a pathetic social life I have, isn't it? Realistically, <laughs> but but no, it it ironically. All the answers and all the information that you need is in there. I mean, I wouldn't suggest trying to sit down and read about 600 pages overnight, but like a couple of pages a, a night, and if you, you know, it's your truck and you've got that truck for a, for a long time, and it does all start to make sense. It does get a bit wordy, some of them, I wouldn't say, but some of the German manufacturers, my God, it's like makes War and Peace, War and Peace seem like a paperback. But uh, if you just look at certain sections and anything you don't understand, all the information you you know you need is there, and and it's a, it must be the most thankless task on the planet actually writing handbooks because to, you know that like you you labour over it they're translated into fifty languages and most people leave it in a drawer somewhere. Yeah, well I, I do one that I do remember reading was the Volvo one, which um, went into great detail about the I shift gearbox and everything it could actually do, 
and it was amazing the amount of things that, uh, that um, it was actually capable of and things that you could you could run off the steering wheel and off the cruise control at very low revs and things and um, there were pages and pages on it and but of course all all that you would ever do was go and knock it into drive in a way that you would go, a way you would go but they have become increasingly complex over the years because to begin with automatics were very very simple and when I'd at the, at the point where I'd passed my test automatics were just coming in in a big way like manuals were starting to get rarer uh, but sort of 10 years ago and I think you know I had a strong dislike of automatics for a long time because it was early AS Tronics that I was driving and things and it was either on and on. these things were shocking um, like 6 speed MAN rigids and then you had like the um, Eight speeds and oh, they were just dreadful, bloody things. So I would always love it when I got a manual, and it took me a long time to warm to automatic gearboxes. The first one that I had that actually worked properly, the first couple, I remember getting an 07 plate, I think Volvo FH, and it was a tired, bloody thing at Drummond's. Like it wasn't a nice truck, but that that was the first time I was like, oh wait a minute, now I see this automatic gearbox makes sense. What a difference! And then after that, I got a brand new Renault Premium, which was one of the very first with the Volvo gearbox in it. And that was brilliant. I mean, from then on, I would rave about the benefits of the Renault Premium, and a lot of people didn't like them. But it just drove so well, and it all came down to the the gearbox. But, um, yeah, I think I was emotionally scarred for quite a few years from dealing with uh, early AS-Tronics, early Actros, um, automatics and things, because the, the only one in the beginning that worked properly was the Volvo but of course everybody's caught up now and everybody's automatic does things slightly differently um, but they all work extremely well Rounding off on Scania's um, you have got quite. you've got a very special Scania that you're driving next week and I have got lined up well I'll to it's now coming into the summer months and I've got two short issues a truck and driver to do. I've got programmes to do for shows. I've, got, uh, I've actually been forced into doing office work for ages so I can't just go and sod off and drive lorries, which is annoying because I have got lined up an R540, which I'm really looking forward to. I've seen a lot of those go into service recently with guys who are like in weight critical operations uh, because obviously they're saving on the cab size with the R cab and obviously with the engine rather than the uh, V8. And I've also got, interestingly lined up, I've got a 530, which I'm going to be driving at the end of summer. So it'll be interesting to compare those two kind of back to back. I'm really intrigued to see what the difference in performance and economy will be with those two because there's such an overlap between the two. It's like, why would you choose the 530 over the 540 and so on, but unfortunately I'm being forced to do full, my full-time job, my magazine work over the next few months. Um, but I, what you've got next month, uh, next week rather, or this week by the time this podcast comes out, um, another 770, but this one's very different to the 770S that we had a couple of months back. Yes, it's a, an R-Cab XT 150-ton double-drive tractor unit. Right. Um, it's it's part of Scania's um, current demonstration fleet. It's been doing the rounds of quite a few heavy hauliers, and I'm taking it to a friendly local operator. They've got their I've got a forklift to take down to Devon, but uh, it's not like any other forklift. It's one of their special industrial forklifts. It weighs just shy of sixty tons, so um, it'll be interesting to see how the software and that is set up with that uh, seven seventy. I mean, 
going to be grossing 80 85 between 85 and 90 i suppose something like that but it's it's still well within its sort of overall capability but the one good thing in devon is that they've got a fair few hills both both going up and going down so it'll you know be a reasonable test for it and again it, it's it'll allow as well in that configuration the electronics will allow it to use sort of greater proportions of power and torque because that's what it's there for it's uh I think it's on steel suspension as well with the hub reduction drive axles, so relatively low geared. I wouldn't imagine it'll do sparkling economy, but at that kind of level and at that weight, it's more a matter about getting the job done. If you can't afford the fuel, you really shouldn't be in that line of business. Aye, we know that's you're really going to see what that um, engine and drive line can do at that sort of weight. Aye, that's a that's going to be really interesting. That. And it, it, it's an XT, isn't it? It's an XT, yeah, with a bigger bumper and a bit more ground clearance and what have you and that. And I think it's got I don't know, slightly different trim inside, but uh, I'll be able to tell you a lot more in a week's time, I suppose. But um, right. it, it, listening to you say about the 530 versus, versus the 540, I think the way to view it is um, if you want a truck that's going to give you the best possible fuel consumption, reasonable purchase price, whatever, fleet-type truck, the 540 if you want a v8 but you want one to last and last and last and not and be really low stressed in markets like italy italy's probably scania's biggest v8 market and they sell quite a lot of lower powered v8s and volvo do as well with the 550 16 liters but they go to operators very often as four by twos who keep them for 10 15 years something like that and it becomes then a kind of a very low total cost of ownership vehicle because ah, I suppose as well that you're going to see a difference because of the V8 with the resale values as well, that you may well see an uplift in that uh, when it comes to move it on. I know Scania have just launched as well, just rounding off on them. They've got 16, I think, Flying Griffins, which is their new, uh, a new um, limited edition, which is just like a kind of sticker job on some 770s, which they've all sold anyway before they've already... Uh, before they're even available for public sale. That's uh, yeah, I, I've heard about this, and uh, fair play to Scania's. They're the masters of the limited edition, and uh, their customer loyalty is kind of second to none. I mean, the V8 phenomenon is incredible, really. I know other manufacturers have studied it, and they can't even work out how it's done. They're good machines. They've always been good machines, but they're kind of the the, the fan base is unbelievable. I, I find it a little bit ironic having kind of knowledge and experience going back kind of 40 years with them they've always been damn good vehicles but in the past they were bought by people who were covering long distances running at high weights and doing how can i put it politically correctly quite a lot of work in a very short period of time um, yeah those old there's a lot of old um four series um with the analog tacos uh, yes. going about which have got you know two and a half million kilometers on it legitimately yeah. um <laughs> yes 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 maybe plus that as they say and, and, and it, it's i think it's a phenomenon that even scania can't really understand because so much of the marketing is actually done by the customers you know you think of the way the trucks are presented and what have you but it's a 50 plus year phenomenon long may it continue the 770 in retrospect do we need one not really do you want one stupid question Exactly. <laughs> Moving on, the next bit, well, it's kind of come out really fast, this, because we had seen for a while 
um, these heavily disguised dafts knocking about the continent, these um, black ones with the panels on them, which people online were saying, oh, I don't like the look of that. And I'm like, yeah, well, it's heavily disguised. Um, you're not supposed to know what it looks like. But DAF have um, really kind of pulled a fast one on this because we got an email uh, the 8th of June, is it, or the 9th of June, they are um, doing a live launch of the new DAF truck range and it's getting really to be quite a um, badly kept secret now because I've seen pictures of what they actually look like and that looks to be really interesting. I mean, DAF as it stands, has by far and away the oldest cab range, and fair play to them because they've kept it going and kept it modern all that time. But now we are getting a new complete cab range, and you reckon there's some interesting developments with that, whereby they've, um, there's some new legislation coming in which DAF looked to have made the most of. Well, it, the, the curious thing is with DAF, they've always done just enough with the XF or the 95 before it to keep it current. It's obviously a dated kind of cab shell but they're still very popular and they still drive well and they're still a particularly in super space form a really good place to spend a week or two it's led to you know lots of in jokes in the kind of press uh, the press corps about what they actually do in the DAF design uh, office in um, cab design office in Eindhoven and we've come to the conclusion they've all got second jobs doing gardening and working as volunteer firemen but, uh, but that apart what they've been able to do is take their time, study what they need to achieve, and there's an increase in overall length coming in in European legislation in, I believe, January, which gives, I think, a total, don't quote me on this, I think it's about 450 mil extra length. Some of it has to be in the form of a greater bumper protrusion to protect pedestrians, but the way DAF have read it, they can increase the actual... Uh, length of the cab front to back which from the spy shots we've seen and that means that not only will they have a, a medium size a smaller and a very high cab all of them will be available in sleeper form with a deeper bunk and a deeper living area which is what drivers have wanted for so long mm-hmm. all of these um, cab concepts only work up to a point I and mean, in the past when they've had tables and chairs and folding this that and the other it's always been compressed into too too small a space to make it more practical isn't it realistically it's like you know do you kind of cook and live and do everything else in your bedroom at home no you don't you know you have distinct areas and and, and i think if from what we see they are they have achieved it bear in mind daft had some of the biggest bunks to begin with drivers are going to be really pleased to see even more like bunk space but also more living space around the cab yeah i mean the xf let's say the super space now it still holds up remarkably well today the, the thing that you really notice about it these days is the lack of glass when you get into like a more modern cab they've got much deeper um side windows on them uh, and a much deeper windscreen for increased visibility they've done a remarkable job of keeping it up to date and it looks like there's going to be three cabs from what I've seen. It looks like you've got your kind of CF style cab uh, and the XF cab and there's one sitting in the middle there as well and I'm not sure if that's going to be sort of about the same size as Scania's R cab um, just as hazarding a guess there but instead of having the um, the two cab sizes it looks like they're going to have three uh, and they're smart looking things as well. They have got people, there will inevitably be people online saying that looks like a Scania or, you know it's a good looking thing but all trucks need to have these big um, 
scooped vents in the middle of them allow them to suck enough air in to cool these Euro 6 engines which run they run extremely hot um, temperatures they've got gigantic radiators and gigantic oil capacities in them to try and keep them cool so it's, it's a design fact and also all manufacturers are now chasing the, the, the very tiniest percentages for aerodynamics I remember somebody from DAF said back 10 years ago we wouldn't consider like chasing 1% efficiency we wouldn't go and bother with it because it wasn't enough doing it and now they're like chasing like 0.1% efficiency savings so the trucks are very carefully sculpted and there's only so many ways you can make something aerodynamic so that's why everything bears a certain resemblance to each other you know if you turn your headlights vertically people will say it looks like a Volvo <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah we live in a world where unfortunately with the kind of cult of the kind of social media people make instant judgments on things it's like the like don't like sort of syndrome and uh, I know you and I both find it fairly frustrating because if we have a truck for a week it takes us a week to kind of come to the conclusion is it good bad or indifferent and probably three days to to turn it into words but people nowadays seem to be able to want to make a kind of instant judgment and decide and condemn something just in one glance I mean what people have always got to bear in mind, legislation, economy, aerodynamics will push truck design in the same direction because you can't cheat the physics, you know, if that's the most aerodynamic shape, etc, etc. Also, I often hear from people there's too much plastic in modern trucks, both inside and out. Well, apart from weight and also production um, convenience, one of the things that pushes manufacturers in this way is legislation. Crash protection legislation, pedestrian protection legislation means that you've got to use deformable plastics and softer materials to meet the legal requirements. If you built it like a kind of Mark 1 Atkinson with a great big push bar on the front of it, yes, it would probably stand up to kind of, um, you know, rough service a bit better. But unfortunately, you'd never get the thing type approved. And also it would have the aerodynamics of a shed. So you you kind of, you've, you've got to bear in mind that like, it's not a, a vanity project on behalf of, the, behalf of the designers. They've got to meet a million and one different criteria before they even come up with a shape. Aye, I'm just yeah talking about like instant judgments and things. I'm just having a look. I'm just having a look on Facebook this morning. Michelin were um, flagging up the new Volvo range, and I just some of the replies on there like you know our Michelin tires are rubbish. <laughs> the most expensive tyre in the market. And here's somebody else saying, nope, I would be changing the tyre sizes on the, on those trucks. And, you know, they spend millions on aerodynamics and things like that. And there's people, you know, just immediate, immediately writing <laughs> writing things off <laughs> on on the cult of, like, Facebook and things, you know. Uh, wouldn't care if they were fitted with wooden cartwheels. It'd still be more desirable than a DAF. They're still Volvos, though. They'll break down... <laughs> Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I I think you'll find there's too many people with too much time on their hands, but they're not applying enough of it, enough of that time to actually thinking before they put they post something. And again, everyone's got their likes, dislikes, or whatever. But trust me, some of the stuff I see on social media are trucks from the '60s and '70s praising them is coming from people who've never driven them because the difference with modern trucks and trucks from 35, 40, 45 years ago is so it's so unbelievable. I mean, it, it it's has anyone ever driven a modern truck and had the sensation that it won't stop? Well, unless they're a complete fool, no. But back in the 70s, that was a regular feature. That was a regular thing. If you overdrove it and you come to a situation and you knew that damn thing wasn't going to stop. And 
if I if anyone ever asked me the greatest achievement in modern vehicle technology, it's braking. It's the ability to brake and stop. Mm-hmm. It's because uh, you've got vastly improved as well. AEBS improved enormously going into like. Well, they start. They brought it in at the start of Euro Six, and it would be you know crisp packets and pigeons and things would set it off. And now uh, the three trucks I've had this year have had Volvo, Scania, and Iveco, um, and I've never once had an actual false alarm. It's pre-warned us a couple of times yeah. when it's like you know there's a car turning left or right, and it it'll tell you it's like I don't like this. But then, as long as you take control and do something, um, then the truck will go okay. It's fine. If you just sit there and don't do anything, then it'll apply its brakes, but then that's because you've not told it, you know, um, that, that you're aware of the car there, that you know that it's turning left or right. One of the downsides of really good brakes, it seems ironic to say it, but people become more and more cavalier when it comes to the business of stopping. You watch people, they come off a motorway and they haven't slowed down, they'll go onto the slip road and they only brake when they're within 50 metres of the line, you know, and ultimately... What you do, you push yourself further and further into the kind of danger area. And you said earlier about trucks turning over. Only one thing makes trucks actually turn over, that's excessive speed. Okay, if the load moves or whatever, that adds to the equation. But no truck ever actually turned over unless the wind blew it over until it started moving. Ah, exactly. Uh, so, I mean, that, with DAF uh, introducing that this new model range, that means all seven of the truck manufacturers have got um, a new modern cab in the market. So, I mean, really, we've never had it better. It'll be curious to see if it comes out with mirror cam on it or not. Um, I suspect it might be an option because I've seen quite a few of them testing with it. But I suspect that DAF will probably just say it's there if you want it, as opposed to Mercedes, who've been very proactive in saying, you know, we really want you to have this. It's, it's very unusual to see a Mercedes with mirrors on it now. They all come with the cameras. Yeah, I mean, DAF have always traditionally been very cautious when it comes to new technology. You know, they were the last to adopt uh, EBS disc brakes, etc., etc., but it served them very well in terms of the number of trucks they sell, and it's allowed them to kind of refine the technology before they apply it. I would imagine, yeah, it'll be, it'll be a, uh, the standard fitting will be conventional mirrors, and it'll be there as an option. I would also be fairly sure that if they're adopting it, they'll have improved the technology, the camera quality, the picture quality, and probably the overall the overall range of vision as well. And I'm not anti it at all, but I think with the Mercedes, the problem has been it does a lot of things better than standard mirrors, but there's a couple of things it doesn't do quite as well. And you've got to say to yourself, would you have any other system on a truck that for maybe 15% of its capability it doesn't do as well as the system it's replacing and my gut feeling is no you know you you have to go with it particularly something as critical as rearward vision until it's absolutely right and I know there's people who will argue the contrary an office full of them not far from where we're sitting here at Mercedes head office but at the end of the day all I can report and all I can say is what I feel and what I find the thing is with vision vision is entirely dependent upon the quality of your own eyesight. Some people have got long sight, people have got short sight, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but what you see in that in that monitor is a repixelated image from a camera. It's not a reflected image. So it comes down to the quality of the image and the quality of the pixelation and the quality of the, the monitor you're looking at. Now, I would imagine the next manufacturer is to go for it. 
we've had what three or four years development mm-hmm. further development and practical use so you'll see sort of quantum loops in quality in that respect as far as the DAF is concerned yeah I mean DAF have got huge market share throughout most European markets particularly in Britain they're not going to do anything to prejudice their their, their core fleet customers who buy thousands of trucks off them each year so they will take a kind of I would say a, a middle of the road approach to it all and they will be all things to all people, which has served them so well, hasn't it, for the last yeah, 25 years? I do. I mean, I was speaking to a guy up in Aberdeen there who we're going to go and do a feature on his trucks. He's just ordered another pair of XF530s and uh, manual gearboxes um, because they're still, in the north of Scotland, north of England, parts of like rural yeah, yeah. parts of England, people still are specifying them from DAF, which is um, the reason that they've kept them going for so long. So, yeah, I would imagine with the mirror cam, they'll probably play it safe and it will be... Um, an option that's there should you require it to be but um, I'd say in terms of truck I mean we've never had it we won't ever have had it better Um, the truck that I had after rounding off the podcast the truck that I had after the Scania 770 I dropped down 310 horsepower and 5 litres and got into the Iveco S-Way 460 and did a week for Pollux Um, and I had to retune my throttle, I had the weight that I had to apply to the throttle after driving the Scania. But I tell you what, that the, the biggest compliment I can pay that Iveco S-Way is I jumped into it three weeks after I had the Scania and I've got no complaints about it really. The Iveco, it looks like uh, Iveco badly need this truck to be a success um, across Europe and in the UK because the Stralis, for all its... Um, the, the unfair criticism levelled that it was severely out of date in certain aspects. Um, and the S-Way resolves a lot of that, and we're seeing a lot of smart ones starting to go into fleets now, and we're seeing a lot of guys considering um, purchasing one who would certainly not have bothered with Australis previously. So it's really like, across any of the seven manufacturers now, you, you can... Um, it's impo- pretty impossible to get a bad truck unless somebody makes a complete mess of specking it for the job that you're on, like I say, but that's not the fault of the truck. Uh, and I've got to say, I was a big fan of that, um, the 460, because it's only an 11 litre as well, and it would definitely outgun certain manufacturers' 13 litre 480s. I would I would have taken one of them on, like, no problem full time if somebody was to offer me it, so I've, that's quite a high compliment to pay. The only thing with the Iveco now is, though, that it's, the dashboard layout is going to be, ve- it's very traditional, I guess, because the DAF's going to probably have a mo- monitors and things rather than dials and stuff. So do you remember seeing the um, the the Nikola truck with all the computer screens and everything in it? Yeah, yeah. I, I've heard that there is a, a new interactive dash going to become available from Iveco. They've probably done the right thing. They've gone down a conservative kind of approach of launching it. With, you know, don't scare the horses, sort of thing. And I agree with you. I drove a 480 the other day just for two days, and you get out of it and you think that's better than I thought it was going to be. And you know, you, you you're quietly impressed by how well it actually performs, be it 11 litre or a 13 litre. And as I've said before, the ride and handling, the spec is entirely dependent on which boxes are ticked and how much money the customer wants to spend. But Iveco would be well served to push people into reasonably well spec trucks, which is going to push better trucks into the used market as well in in, in like in the long term. And not only that, because Iveco are how can we put it price competitive and they've got reasonable availability, people will consider them, and they just as well spec it to a reasonable level and still have 
you know, a considerable price um, benefit in relation to some of the more expensive stuff on the market. I've never had any qualms about the Cursor engine range. They, it's always outperformed and always had a, a kind of lively performance and still gives decent fuel consumption. And it, it's, a, it's actually a very good fleet vehicle because you just jump in and point it, don't you? Oh, there's no modes in the gearbox or anything like that. There's nothing fancy about it. It is, out of all the trucks, the most simple one to get in and just go and get a result from. And, of course, uh, the 570 is a flying machine. You know, you, that the price bracket that that's in, you could get one of those for the price of something much, much more modest from other manufacturers. And I think if a few of them start to get into fleets, you, once the kind of word gets out about how it goes, you'll have guys kind of... Um, scrambling to grab the keys for it which is going to be important for them getting that kind of driver appeal there was a lot of interest in the truck and a lot of people noticed it when i was on the road as well i had people asking a lot of questions about it as well uh, there's one thing that we want to probably put to bed to round off because there's this bizarre rumor going about as well that iveco are going to launch a v8 engine which um is absolutely not going to happen for many many reasons <laughs> the- <laughs> Iveco, as Dougie and I have discussed numerous times, actually have a 16-litre version of the Cursor straight-six engine. It's used in construction equipment, it's used in agricultural equipment, it's also used in Astra heavy-duty dump trucks, which are part of the Iveco group. It's a scaled-up version of the 13-litre, I think it's SCR-only engine, variable geometry turbo, straight-six, and it produces up to 775 brake horsepower and 3,000 plus Newton, 3,500 Newton meters of torque, which takes it up to kind of Volvo and Scania level, if they ever put it in a truck. And they could theoretically put it into an S-way and cool it. They would have kind of the ultimate kind of, how can I put it, uh, stealth vehicle, because, you know, given the sort of fairly ordinary kind of appearance of a lot of Ivecos, but with that level of performance, it would work. But it comes down to money, it comes down to how many they could sell. The irony is, they could sell them in Italy, because Italy is actually one of the biggest markets for 16-litre engines. It's Scania's biggest market for many, many years. But again, Iveco, have they got the money, have they got the, the inclination to do it? And the other factor that people have got to take into account, vector regulations and in the EU which measure the entire CO2 output of truck manufacturers, even the vehicles, the production process, etc, etc. And for every 16 litre engine you sell, you need to sell an awful lot of lower capacity and gas powered and maybe even electric powered vehicles to bring your figures back in line. I'd love to see them do it. This rumour regarding the V8, I, there was something on some website, because Aveco, they're engine division is called Fiat Powertrain. They make a huge range of engines up to V12s and uh, military spec engines, air, railway engines and industrial engines and they make a 24 valve, 24 litre V8 and they still make a form of the 17.2 litre I think it was when the V8 mm-hmm. engine yeah, used in the Turbostar. But to get that in automotive form to Euro 6 step E now would probably bankrupt the company. And they would sell, in the overall scheme of things, penny numbers. It's a great idea and it's great for the kind of people who want to look back at how good things were in the past. I cannot, for the life of me, see there would be any justification. You're looking at an engine that last saw use at Euro 2. It didn't even get as far as Euro 3. 
you would have to have a completely different fuel system. You would have to have completely different valves, head design, block design. You, you, there, there's no. It's, it's like me at my age deciding that I'm going to become a world class pole vaulter. It just ain't going to happen. No, I think yeah. If and there's an enormous if uh, Iveco ever did go for a bigger engine, it would be the Cursor 16, which there's quite a lot of information about online. Should you choose to read about it, but like Bob says, it's um, there are emission regulations whereby it's just not that easy to go and build a big powerful truck that emits more CO2. Iveco would have to go and sell a lot more gas trucks which um, they seem to be doing. They seem to be chipping away with that in the UK. There's a, f- a few more of them going into fleets here and there, so that'll be an, an interesting one to see how many of the, how many of them. The Royal Mail have just taken a lot of them, but uh, that's a kind of story for another time. Uh, Bob and I are going this afternoon to Millbrook to go and see Volvo's entire new demonstration range of all their new, their new trucks, which are just starting to hit the road in the UK now. I had the FM... Uh, earlier in the year, you had the FH16, which is uh, in our current issue at the moment. And of course, there's no doubt Volvo are furiously um, got stuff on the drawing board at the moment, uh, scheming away as to um, how much power they're going to go and go above, above and beyond 770 horsepower, because they're not going to let Scania away with that, not by a long shot. <laughs> yes, uh, they always say we're not in a horsepower race, but I'll break horsepower or uh, torque race. But just by chance, it's come out with a little bit more than that lot from down the road. So, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, again, long may it continue. Whether it will be curtailed now with you know different propulsion forms. Pardon me, I said, no, I hope not, because it gives us something to rattle on about, doesn't it? No, yeah, well, I mean, they've got, there are, like, really effective electric range trucks coming out now. Volvo have signed up a big... Um, a thing with Daimler whereby they're looking into hydrogen as well but you know diesel's going to be here for you know a long time to to come yet but uh, uh, thanks for coming on the podcast I'll get you again I'll get you to come on again soon um all right let's get out of here and go and see what these Volvos are like exactly yes I roll I think isn't it that's what Volvo said means in Latin cool right thanks very much Bob see ya bye. Yeah, bye thanks for listening to the truck and driver podcast Please subscribe to this podcast so you never miss an episode. To keep up to date with the latest news, 100% for drivers, visit truckanddriver.co.uk, where you can also subscribe to the print edition of Truck and Driver magazine, which publishes on the last Friday of every month. The Truck and Driver podcast is produced by Sound Rebel. To find out more, please visit soundrebel.co.uk.